Take two parts Betty Davis, one part Grace Jones, and a pinch of Eartha Kitt, and you have one of the best rock and roll heroines to grace the fictional stage. On this special episode of the Vulgar Geniuses podcast, we sit down with journalist and author Donnie Walton to talk about her much-anticipated debut novel, The Final Revival of Opal and Nell. We place Walton center stage as she speaks about her love of rock and roll, the moment when she began to step into her authentic self at the start of her college years, and how those and many other experiences as a journalist helped form this beautiful story. I'm Denny. And I'm Veronica. Stay with us in this episode of the Vulgar Jesus Podcast. Are you currently looking for a bookstore that has a great selection of books? Well, Kizzy's Books and More is that bookstore. Visit www.kizzysbooksandmore.com to purchase your next book for our book club. Use coupon code VULGARGENIUS to receive 10% off the subtotal of your first order. Hello, everyone. Welcome to a special, special episode of the Vulgar Geniuses podcast. We're your hosts. My name is Denny. And I'm Veronica. And today we are joined with the lovely, amazing writer, Donnie Walkton. Please welcome her. Hey, hey, (laughs) Denny, Veronica. I am so excited to be here because, Veronica, you know... Fam you. Fam you. Fam you. Yes. Yes. For those who do not know, Johnny is a graduate of the illustrious Florida <laughs> AM University in Tallahassee, Florida. People association associate FSU with Tallahassee, but we just don't mm. get it twisted because we sit on the highest hill. The highest <laughs> hill. The we highest use words hill. like illustrious. That's <laughs> right. Um, so if anyone has been living under a rock and do not know who Donnie Walton is, we will fill you in. Um, she is a fiction writer and journalist who explores identity, place, and the influence of pop culture. She has won fellowships from McDowell and the Tin House Summer Workshop and has earned her MFA from the Iowa Writers Workshop. Previously, she worked as an executive level editor for magazine and multimedia brands, including Essence, Entertainment Weekly, Getty Images, and Life. Her short fiction has been featured on the Poets and Writers Ampersand podcast and as a part of Let's Play Imagination, Intuition, and Black Creativity, an interdisciplinary exhibit of Afro-surreal art at Oakland's Pro Arts Gallery. Donnie is a native of Jacksonville, Florida, and she currently lives with her husband in Brooklyn. So, oh, we just wanted to say congratulations yes. on your wedding. Thank you. <laughs> our, our first anniversary is actually Saturday. Oh, wow. Oh, yeah. Happy anniversary. Thank you. Love, we love the love. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, so we're talking about... The one and the only. The final revival of Opal and Nev. This is such a beautiful book. And this came to us today. Yay. Thank, thank you so much. So much. <laughs> we absolutely love it. Um, this novel follows, it follows several people. And the main 
person that it follows is Sunny. She's a journalist who is on a search of finding out the story about her father, who is, whose name is Jimmy, who is a part of the Opal and um, Nev group. And Opal, who is this just amazing, like fierce fire starter of a woman, but also stubborn, <laughs> who has. Oh, yeah. Found her place in love with this passion of music uh, in New York City, and it is quite a journey. And we are so excited to talk to you about it this evening. Um, we, Thank we're, you. We're, we're gonna try to do um, the questions without spoiling a lot, because um, you know we want we want the readers to be engaged but not spoiled That's with right. with some of our parts, because. Those are the parts that you don't want to miss. <laughs> yeah, this is some, there's some bombshell parts in here. Yeah. Thinking Absolutely. about it, I'm already sweating because I'm like, what? Who's <laughs> 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 old? I'm going to let you take it away with the first question. So, um, so this novel, like we said, is exhilarating and very, very empowering. Um, what is the inspiration of the novel, The Revival of Opal and Nip? So I grew up, as you said, in that wonderful introduction in Jacksonville, Florida, which, you know, Veronica, you know, North Florida is very, very Southern. Um, it's not like Miami, Florida. It's not like, like palm trees and all that. It's like country. It feels country, right? And, um, you know, grew up a teenager in the 90s and was really sort of into like alternative music, indie rock, all these forms that it felt a little taboo for me to like, because I didn't really honestly see myself as a black woman reflected in that music. And that was really difficult to feel like I really love this music, but I don't, I don't see myself in it. It was really hard. Um, so it was always, I was always thinking that that was um, something in my life, in my youth that I was interested to explore. And then in 2013, I was watching this documentary called 20 Feet from Stardom. If you haven't seen it, really check it out. But it's about background singers and the unsung, usually black women who contributed heavily to pop music and rock and roll all through history. So women like Mary Clayton, who sings backup on, uh, well, actually it's not even backup. She's, it's like a duet with Mick Jagger on Gimme Shelter by the Rolling Stones. So I'm watching that movie and five minutes in, they're showing footage from Talking Heads uh, concert film called Stop Making Sense, right? Mm -hmm. And so David Byrne is the front man of that band and I've always sort of enjoyed how strange and weird he is. So the camera's on him and he's doing his weird kind of quirky David Byrne stuff. But then to the left of him, you see these incredible dynamic carefree black women and they are just, rocking it out like they're singing their hearts out dancing like crazy and I was fascinated by those women something about the sight of them because I always heard black voices on the track but it was something about actually laying eyes on the people making the music that you didn't see in the music video things like that that was a real moment for me and I almost felt like you know the way I describe it is I 
really wanted to reach my hand in the screen, literally, and pull one of those women to center stage with David Byrne for the rest of the show. And I just had this image in my head for like weeks. And it sparked all these questions, like what if two people like this got together and made music in an era that I really loved, which was actually, you know, before Talking Heads, but the early 1970s, what would that have been like? What, what would have made them famous? You know, how long would they have lasted? And what would happen to each of them when, when they went their separate ways? And so that's how I started writing, you know, at the time I was working full time. So I would get up at five in the morning and, you know, like write then. And then if I wasn't too tired by the end of the day, I would work at night. And before long, like the idea, what I was doing was so compelling to me that I knew I, I wanted to pursue it more seriously and full time. Because at first it felt just like something that I was doing for myself to kind of explore something. And then I was like, I think this is good. Maybe this is good. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks. So that's how it started. Yeah. Was it originally like just you writing a short story or did you have in your mind in the very beginning, I want to write a book and just. I did not, you know, I did not know exactly what it was. It was always structured though, as the oral history style. And I think that was just because I wanted to hear the characters just raw. So it's like, the first pages of the oral history with Opal and her sister Pearl talking about their childhoods are the first pages I ever wrote of the book um, because I just wanted to follow these voices, you know, and just sort of getting them out on the page that way felt natural to me and it felt very, felt very good. Mm. The execution of the storyline was perfect and it was just captivating. Um, what made you decide to um, write that novel in that uh, interview format? So I had worked at Entertainment Weekly and I had worked there for about six years. And the oral history format was one that they used a lot to sort of tell the stories of iconic films or albums, things that people really love. And what I liked about it was that you get to see how people's memories compare and contrast, you know? And then also you have all these big personalities involved because usually it's celebrities and celebrities are like wild and like fun, especially celebrities of a certain era. And so it just felt like if I wanted to come in on the premise that these were two very famous people or, you know, that they were very known at some point, it felt like the appropriate kind of format, you know, kind of writing it as, you know, the novel is itself kind of like in the fictional universe, it is a book in and of itself, right? It's hard to explain, but um, so I thought it was a form that was fitting for the characters and for how people knew them and wanted to hear from them. To me, it was like, it was just so, it was great because I think I've never read a book written this way. That's just, that's just me. And I was asking Veronica this earlier and she was like, we, we thought about it. I'm like, mm, we haven't really read a book like this. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And to me, I was lost. I was lost in this world in like a, such a good way. So it was really effective in conveying these people and their like narratives. 
So Thank you, you. it almost kind of felt like it was nonfiction and have to like go back and be like, wait, 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 this is, <laughs> this, this is just a story. And she made this up, but you know, it was, it was nice to have those layers and yet maintain the fiction side of it. And yet, you know, you have some stuff like little anecdotes, like on the bottom of the page where yeah. like, you know, it was almost kind of like giving like a history lesson, mm, but not giving yes. a history lesson which I really appreciated because I also love historical fiction. Nice. Yeah, so I'm like, I could eat this book, darling. <laughs> <laughs> so speaking of like historical fiction, um, what type of kind of like research, I know you've, you've been in like a vast background and like you've done a lot of stuff, um, which, you know, validates all the stuff you write here. But what type of like research did you had to do for you to make sure that this is like, you know, a valid content and it's, you know, relevant and it's, yeah, and it's accurate for the reading. Well, reading. yeah, so um, I did a lot of digging into the archives of the New York Times, you know, going into billboard charts from the 70s. You know, I did a lot of, I read a lot of nonfiction. Um, I read, for instance, um, Robin Givon, uh, her book about the Battle of Versailles was one that I read for the chapter where Opal is in Paris, you know. Um, I read Debbie Harry's memoir. Um, I, gosh, I watched a lot of YouTube clips from old talk shows. And that was fascinating because, you know, today celebrities are very kind of like very trained, very media trained, very slick, very smooth. Y'all, the edges were out. Yes. <laughs> the edges were out in the 1970s. Like, you know, people on the set smoking cigarettes and like being very political and very controversial. Um, so that was fun for writing the transcripts of Opal and Nev on like Dick Cavett show, you know, was, was one thing. But also I think I did a lot of like visual research. Mm -hmm. And by that, I mean, looking at photography from the time to think about what Opal would be wearing on stage. Um, looking at, you know, concert photography, looking into like the crowds and understanding what their fans would have been like. All those little things that kind of evoke the mood of the era was really like came to me by just like looking at photography. Um, so all of those things, yeah, it was, and it was really fun. Like I like research, you know? And sometimes I think the research sometimes distracted me a little bit from the writing. <laughs> that rabbit hole. <laughs> Those rabbit holes, exactly. <laughs> it's a good way to procrastinate, right? Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, yeah, the research was, um, it, people are always like, oh, it must it must have been like really intense, but it didn't feel that way to me because it's an era that I think um, is so fascinating um, culturally, politically, uh, all those things. It's a fascinating time. What I like when you mentioned like the Dick Cavett mm. uh, and let me speak about Dick Cavett first before I go on to Battle of Versailles. Um, just the way you wrote his speaking 
and and also like Quentin Tarantino yeah. and Quest Love. It felt as if you called them up and say, "Okay, I need you to talk," <laughs> and I'm just gonna write his the when he's speaking and you have those awes in the middle of mm-hmm. his of his speech. It's just like this is exactly how he speak you had his cadence down perfectly and i absolutely love that but uh in regards to the battle of versailles there i'm not sure if you've heard there was this podcast called the nod and yes of course time that i had ever heard of this of this this designer battle that took place in paris and when i got to that part i was like wait a minute that name sounds familiar and obviously i went and googled it and i was like oh my goodness i know exactly what she's talking yeah. about oh man the documentary the, the the podcast that went along with it everything is just phenomenal and it was great to be able to see all of those moments within history that like as Jenny said like that historical fiction where you're just pulled in because I know she was like wait a minute is this a real book I don't want to spoil too much but like the picture okay yes picture that that was just so like when I was reading it I feel like I've touched it or I've seen it somewhere Mm. and I can like google the picture and it would pop up and I know exactly how it looked like yes to me, to me, that was really fascinating because I think people would write about historical fiction, but mm-hmm. not everybody can write something that happened in history or, you know, we could have pretended that happened in history, but actually felt like it really did. Mm-hmm. So wow. that, yeah, that really, I appreciated that. And because you were like, you know, you looked at the photography and just like all the intricacies of all the stuff that you researched and you put it in this book, man. Like my hats off to you because that, that, that was something that I was, you know, very, very appreciative about. Thank so, you. Yeah. Um, so up leading up to your your book release, you've decided that you're going to highlight different um, black female musicians uh, who have been and are um, monumental into this whole genre of, of music, of rock and R&B and soul. Um, who did you pull from to create Opal? Mm, I love this question. So for me, there were, there were three main figures that um, were very influential to me in writing Opal. One is Grace Jones uh, in terms of her style, and her sort of unapologetic, like avant-garde, you know, the way she carries herself. Like, in fact, in the very early days of writing this book, my pitch, before I even knew what it was or where it was going, my pitch was, you know, imagine if Grace Jones and David Bowie made music together in 1971, New York. Like that was like how it started in terms of how I envisioned them physically. Um, So Grace Jones is one. Nona Hendrix is number two. So Nona Hendrix, um, for those who don't know, was a member of LaBelle, which was, you know, most people know Lady Marmalade from LaBelle. That was their biggest hit. But they also, you know, did a lot of like rock and roll, funk songs, Um, And they had their heyday in the 1970s. And they were also very avant-garde. Like if you Google pictures of LaBelle, you'll see them in sort of like crazy space suits with 
feathers all over them. And um, Nona Hendrix wrote a lot of their songs and the songs were often very political in nature. And when she went off to do her solo career, she definitely like moved in a more rock and roll direction. Uh, and she's always been sort of like a big part, a big and central part of the black rock movement. She's written a lot of songs for a lot of different acts. Um, so that was number two. And number three was an artist that I learned more about when doing the research for this book. And that was Betty Davis. So um, Betty Davis was a cult funk star for a couple of years on the New York scene. So she was a former model and she used to hang out with like Jimi Hendrix and Sly Stone. And then for one brief year, she was married to Miles Davis. Um, very tumultuous year, but she was a huge influence on him and she sort of changed his style. She sort of electrified his sound and got him like being just sort of like a more funky personality overall. She was married to him for a year and then she was like, I'm done with that. <laughs> and she put on like very electrifying and super sexual performances in New York City. Um, but she had this, she has this really unique voice. Um, and she doesn't even, you know, I read an inter old interview with her where she says, she, you know, I don't, I don't really sing. Like what I do is like vocalize sound pretty much. So you'll hear her like yelping on the record and like growling and, um, and I always sort of imagined musically Opal's voice sort of being similar. It's not like a pretty voice. It's not a conventional voice, but it's very arresting. So, and then I also loved Betty Davis's freedom as a sexual being and not really um, caring what those in the audience might think. You know, a lot of the white male critics, like basically all the critics were white men in those days. And they were very sort of like, well, I don't know what this, you know, I don't know what this is. And she was like, if you don't like it, like, screw you, you know? Yeah. And um, I, I love that about her. So sort of like those three women, I was thinking about them a lot when writing Opal. Um. One one musician that came to mind when I was reading it was Sharon Jones, because the way that she performed on stage was just yes. out of this world. And I, I'm so glad that I had the opportunity to see her perform twice. But oh, you're so lucky. I never got the chance. Ooh, that's just a good tear up a stage. Oh. Have a command of the audience like I've never seen. And it was truly a blessing to see her. So when reading this, when reading this novel, that is the first person that came to mind. Um, and also in a way, even though she was, I guess she could consider herself a, a, a musician, but also actress first, a little bit of Eartha Kitt. Yes. There's that viral video that goes around about yes. talking about what is love and being in a relationship. I'm like, this so, oh, well. <laughs> well, you notice that video, she's in a garden, right? She's sitting in a garden and it looks like her garden. And that's what I was thinking about for the scenes where Sunny is interviewing Opal in her garden. Uh, see, 
Oh my god. The the circle is color right here. Yes. (laughs) So um why did you choose to give Opal such like distinct features? Um and like while Nev is kind of like, oh, he's known for his like red hair. And Mm -hmm. um that was the thing that stood out for him the most. Um what is was it to show that Opal helped um how much Opal helped carry um, the group and that Nev was really unforgettable by himself and only became famous because of the association to Opal. Yeah, well, you know, I mean, thinking about the book, like the premise is that it's written by Sunny and she has always been very fascinated by Opal and has also very complicated feelings about Opal. And um, I think I, I wanted the gaze I wanted Opal to be centered and I wanted um, because we're black women are never centered in rock and roll. Right. Like we're, you know, the background singers and there's a, there's a few here and there, you know, who um, people even acknowledge are rock and roll artists. So for this book, you know, thinking about who, I wanted to idolize as a young girl. Like I wanted someone like an Opal and I wanted to be very clear about things like that she has dark skin, you know, Um, that she loves that skin that she's in. Like no matter what situation, Mm -hmm. no matter who she's around or what she's doing, she's very clear about who she is. Um, So that was really important to me. Um, and I think, yeah, I mean, that's a really good question. I just wanted the book ultimately to be not only about her, but about how she and Sunny sort of mirror each other and the comparing and contrasting them. Um, yeah, that was really important. Uh, we see Opal and Nev in there, you having this feeling that there's something bigger to explore outside of just their regular life. What did you want to convey about the pursuit of a dream? Mm. <laughs> so both Opal and Nev are hugely ambitious. But I think, and this is really hard to talk about without spoiling. <laughs> we'll try our best. <laughs> that ambition manifests itself very differently in both of those people. For one of those people, there is a limit to ambition and there are boundaries and there are things that that character would not ever do. Mm -hmm. And then for the other character, the ambition is everything. Mm -hmm. Um. And so I wanted to sort of explore how these two people kind of both start out very hungry for a career in music Mm -hmm. and sort of show that dividing line, you know, like their childhoods are both lonely. They, they're outward opposites, but they do have some things in common. And I think that's why um, early on they are so close, Mm -hmm. you know, but their differences in their upbringings and their perspectives make all the outcomes different. 
Yeah. Um, so that's what I wanted to explore. Mm-hmm. Yeah. From what, from what, you know, what we were trying to say too, like, I think from where they chose how to define themselves as adults is when the divide happened. Yes. And, you know, it's, that would be something that y'all can read about or we can talk about <laughs> later. Yes. <laughs> we have a book club meetup you can join us but until oh i listen i cannot wait until like we can start having those kinds of conversations because like before the book is out you know i haven't really been able to talk too much but i would love to be a fly on the wall of any book club like i want to hear about like the nitty-gritty yeah, you can you can you come can, with us. Like we we're, we'll we're no, we we are named vulgar geniuses for a reason. <laughs> we, don't, we don't hold back anything. No, we, we call don't. it as it is, <laughs> but for purposes of you know, keep keeping keeping the book intact, we're we're willing to do this today for sure. <laughs> we read in your acknowledgments that you were challenged to um, complicate the narrative, which gave birth to Sunny. Was Sonny's character present within your first draft? Well, yes and no. (laughs) So I had written probably about two thirds of a full draft. And I took a piece of that to graduate school, University of Iowa, the writer's workshop. And in my first workshop, my classmates said, we love this. We think this has great potential, but we're very curious about who's putting these stories together because at that point it was just straight interviews with no no narrative context that the Sunny character provides. And they're like, we really want to know who it is they're talking to Mm -hmm. and what that person's agenda might be. And so I thought about that and I thought that it would be like a very interesting layer. And in that version, you know, there's a lot of characters in the novel. Some of them are in it more than others. There are some people who just dip in for like one particular moment. And at that time, Sunny was one of those that dips in for a moment. So I had this idea for um, a character who would be the daughter of Jimmy Curtis, their drummer, and whose education Opal had paid for. And so there was a little paragraph in the, in the draft where she's sort of talking about like her complicated feeling about Opal, but the fact that she was grateful to her um, for paying for her education and, and all of these things. And there was always something in that paragraph that I kept coming back to and thinking, I think this is really interesting. And so I was thinking, when I was thinking about, you know, who would be this character that they're talking to, I sort of extrapolated that little paragraph and started thinking about, you know, who this woman was mm-hmm. and the ways in which she would she might mirror Opal and the ways in which she might clash with Opal. Mm-hmm. And I thought she was just like a really fascinating person to see through, to see the story through. And I was thinking about, you know, I want, even where it's like the parts where it's pure interviews, I wanted it to be that the reader always kept Sunny in the back of their mind. And so like 
when they're reading people saying these crazy things about her father, you feel her presence and you, you kind of wonder how she's reacting. Um, so that's what I hope to do. So we're, we're going in a little bit into the novel. Um, we might, we might say something here, but you know, so bear, bear with us listeners and readers. <laughs> um, so um, basically Opal was kind of like holding the shows when, when Nev went into this dark place. And right. She was kind of like this anchor of this duo. Um, but, you know, they went on their separate ways. And then when she felt like she was ready again to do something with him, everybody was kind of just like jumping ship because they right. were thinking like, oh, Nev is now in like a different direction. Yeah. That really pissed me off. Um, <laughs> and because yeah. it was just, it was just something, you know, um, it was you, you were trying to portray the double standard with women, especially like with women of color. Um, why, why did you choose um, to highlight or emphasize that narrative? Hmm. There's this idea of the so-called muse, which is a very frustrating idea because it completely discounts the individual and separate talent. It's usually used to speak of a woman. Yes. Um, and it just totally dismisses everything that she herself is bringing to the table for herself and puts it in this context where um, that woman is sort of making that man better or more talented he's sort of gazing on her he's sort of like using whatever encouragement she gives him to take himself to some next level mm-hmm. and um so that's a little bit what i was wanting to get at i also sort of was trying to write about um the power dynamics at least as nev perceives it between him and Opal, you know, Um, they sort of start out where Opal is kind of like a a featured player, you know, she's like a background singer. She doesn't do a whole lot on the record, but then there's this pivotal moment in the book that sort of puts her squarely in the spotlight. And then um, she begins to, especially in that part, Denny, you're talking about when they go on tour and she's really holding them down, like she's the star of the shows, right? And done it herself. He don't like that. Right. Nope. He does not like that. And yet he also knows that part of the reason why they are doing so well is because of her. Yes. So, you know, there's this tension and he becomes very sort of resentful and angry with her because he has some entitlement issues, you know? Uh, yeah. <laughs> so I think I'll leave it at that before I say anything too much. So I want to, I want to jump and talk about your, your writing. Um, 
with every author that we've ever interviewed on, on, on our show, they have all mentioned the struggle of um, their narrative being told that it's not relatable in, in the mm. world, right? So um, you have an essay that is called On the Urge to Check Yourself. And you wrote about um, the conversation that Toni Morrison had with uh, Charlie Rose in regards to the white gaze. Was there ever a time in your writing where you may have found yourself like self-editing because you felt that maybe the publishing company would read it and misunderstand or misconstrue what you were saying within your story? Hmm. I don't remember like, I don't remember any specific moments where I had those thoughts, but I think during the whole writing process, like I was taking great care to make sure that I was writing for my intended audience, which for me was black women, right? So there were certain things, it was more like there were things that I was having Opal saying that like I knew we would understand as black women and it might not like, it might not necessarily make sense to like a copy editor, you know? Like there was, I, I was talking with um, with Disha Filia and Robert Joji. We did like a, a little thing. And um, I was talking about, there's a line Opal says, and Veronica, you will know, but when Opal said, you will lie, you will lie, right? Yes. Like we know what that is, Yes, but when it went through copy edits and it goes through several different copy edits, like every different copy editor who read it was like, you know, <laughs> you're a liar. <laughs> you're a liar. And I was like, no, no, it's you a lie. And like, I, you know, I wrote a note and they're the great thing about, you know, I will say like, um, my publisher, uh, they're great. Like in the sense that you just have to like, you just have to like say that and, and they trust you, you know what I mean? Like they trust you that like, you don't know, you don't need to change it to like make it more palatable or more understandable, you know, like people will get it. Like my audience, I, I, I am very grateful that a lot of different kinds of people are reading this book and loving this book, but you know, I wrote it with, with black women in mind and on my heart and we thank you um like denny said like we wish we could eat this book um, <laughs> the way that you you wrote opal and sunny and and pearl like all all of the women in this sister book. pearl oh sister <laughs> pearl it was it was um it was beautiful and you know you. One thing that i talked to denny about was that if this was written by anybody else I think it would, they would be in this, like, walking this line of either we can make this character like a manic pixie girl, dream girl, uh, trope, or <laughs> your magical Negro, right? Mm -hmm. so, and I'm just so thankful that you did not go that no, way, that you, you stood with Opal all the way to the end of this story. And I just, I just love it. Um, for that um it's thank Grace, you Grace Jones in my head you know okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like she wouldn't do that you'd be like I don't know 
<laughs> uh, can you speak on the sacrifices that one must make in order to accomplish something greater, like how Sonny's mother um, of, of swallowing her pride by accepting help, mm. people, uh, which you know we we find out that is her her husband's mistress, um, in order for her yeah. child to have a decent education. Corinne is a character that is really dear to me. And I have probably about 40 pages that are just about Sonny and Corinne and their mother-daughter relationship. And that sort of takes you through that backstory of Corinne swallowing that pride and what it meant for her. Um, I feel like I have a whole other book to write about that. I would read it. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah, I would. I would really like to uh, to write that. Um, I'm not a mother. I hope to be one day, um, but I look at my own mother and you know, everything she's been through, the sacrifices that I'm sure I'm not even aware of that she she made for me. And, you know, how Black women care for each other, like, was something that I wanted to speak to. And the fact that Corinne is very hard on Sunny. She's very hard on Sunny, but she also loves her very hard. Yes. Mm-hmm. And, you know, she, does not like Opal. <laughs> for, for, you know, a couple reasons. For good reason, mm-hmm. good reason. And yet she understands, like she is going to come out of that tragedy, which is, this is not a spoiler because it's the first paragraph of the book of Jimmy being killed uh, basically in the wake of a protest that Opal kicks off. Mm-hmm. But she understands like, she's gonna take that tragedy and make something good out of it. And even if it can't be for herself, she's gonna do it for her child. Mm. Um, and I think that means that um, in Sonny and Corinne's relationship is often rocky because Corinne has feelings about Sonny being sort of fascinated with Opal. She has feelings about Sonny going into this world of rock and roll as a music journalist, you know? Um, and yet she loves her daughter. And she's going to do what it takes to give her daughter the best. Like that is, that is the satisfaction for her. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. To me, that was one of, when they had a conversation, when she said that I was in awe of my mother, I was also in awe because that yeah. in, a, in a different level. And, you know, like just because I am a mom, but he is very young. He's like a year and a half. So you know, there's going to be a lot of other things that we I'm going to go through that I can't even speak about. But yeah, you said when you're talking, you know, when you're thinking about your own mother and just women in general and, and all the sacrifices that they make, 
seen and unseen are very, very much like palpable. And that, that to me, that conversation really carried, carried a lot. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Thank you. The point that I had to like stop and like pause for a while and maybe like wipe the tear. Oh, (laughs) to me, that was, that really hit me the most in this novel among other things, but that means a lot. Thank you. I, um, I had a lot of like, yeah, I also was very emotional writing those parts. And again, like, it's like, it's like a 40 page (laughs) thing that didn't end up making this book, but I think is for another project. Yes. I I felt, I felt all that emotion in that, in that paragraph. Mm -hmm. Thank you. There's a part in the book where Opal is talking in an interview and she's talking about rock and roll being something that was birthed by black people and then white people taking it and we're just like oh you can have it and it made me think about I think because it recently came up in conversation uh, we just had the Grammys and mm-hmm. Mars was all over the screen and there was a recent conversation about uh, with him and, and Charlemagne about him and appropriating uh, black music what I want to talk about is who do you, when, when talking about music, who lays claim to whatever genre there is? Do you feel like it is ours or, or is it coming from a place of like, it is ours, but we let people borrow it? Oh boy. Genre is a difficult thing because, and especially like it's, it's, when it's applied to rock and roll, it gets complicated because rock has so many different influences, right? And the the goals keep changing. <laughs> so rock and roll has the church in it, the black church. Mm-hmm. It has blues, you know, in it. Um and so like, who were those artists that were doing those things? Well, it was black people, you know what I mean? And um, I think that, and there's, there's a, I'm gonna recommend a book here that really lays this out very clearly and wonderfully. It's called Black Diamond Queens by Maureen Mann. And it's about the contributions of African-American women to rock and roll. And a lot of the artists who are in there, you know, people might say, is that really rock and roll? Is it? But the thing is, is that people kept changing, white people kept changing the definition of what it was, right? And so a lot of times you had these artists, the label executives, they look at you, you're a Black woman. They're like, oh, you must be a soul singer. You must be an R&B singer, you know? And then there's, of course, like, the subgenre that's called funk, which does have sort of a signature sound. But for me, it's also sort of like, okay, we're gonna call the black people who make, who actually make rock music, we're gonna call all of that funk. And that's how we're gonna separate that out, you know? So genre is a really complicated thing. Um, I, I don't think that anybody should own it. I really don't. Um, and I enjoy, you know, some of my favorite 
rock artists are white. Mm-hmm. But I tell you the ones that are really special to me, like a David Bowie, who you need to be clear about your influences. You need to be clear about where this music comes from and where it is rooted. Right. And you probably have seen that there's a viral video that pops up every now and then since David Bowie's death. And it's him in conversation with this VJ from MTV this, this interview was from the eighties. And at the time MTV was not playing any videos by black people. Right. Mm-hmm. And David Bowie challenges him on that. If you haven't watched this video, it is so good because David Bowie like takes this man apart. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> he makes him look, look absolutely ridiculous because it's a ridiculous argument as like, why are you not playing Prince? Mm-hmm. Yes. Mm-hmm. Prince is a rock and roll artist, mm-hmm. you know? And it's like, you just see this gleam in David Bowie's eye as he's just like, look at it. Like this, like you, you are like a ridiculous human being. Like this is, this is really fucking racist. This is yeah. really, there's no reason for this except racism. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So the artists, you know, who are clear about those influences are the ones, you know, the the musicians, the white musicians that I really appreciate that they are speaking those names of those, their predecessors, mm. you know, Little Richard and like, um, who for me was like, I mean, there's no bigger rock star than Little Richard. Right. I think he gave birth to that. That's the, his definition. <laughs> yes, the the originator, the architect of rock and roll. Never duplicated. <laughs> yes. Duplicated at all. <laughs> um, for me, high school could have been well, not necessarily for me as a place of ridicule, but it can be seen as a place of ridicule. Um, but it has uh, was always a place of commentary on like your life choices on like what you look like what you sound like what you listen to right so I always uh dreamt of that day when I would go off to college Mm. the first thing I said I'm gonna go to college and I'm gonna like chop off my hair and I'm gonna grow it after like Angela Davis like I felt (laughs) like that was the moment where I could truly be me um in your letter to the reader in, in the, uh, the advanced reader copies that we have received, you spoke about how you were able to essentially be in this, this safe space, express yourself and experiment however you wanted. What was the moment when you made that realization that you could be unapologetically you? Mm. I'm so glad we're talking about this because we're about to talk about FAMU. <laughs> So my high school, which I love uh, in Jacksonville, was a public magnet school, academic school. Um, it was primarily white. Um, and so, you know, as you said, in that time, I don't think it's the same anymore, but back then, what you listened to could be so defining of how other people viewed you. It was very much like, here are the goth kids and here are the, you know, like it was very, music was very defining in a way that it isn't now. Um, And so again, not seeing myself reflected was a real 
pain point for me. Um, and I was always sort of like, like I felt like I kept my musical taste often compartmentalized, mm. you know, like I had my friends, of course, who were into like alternative rock and all that. But then like around my family, like I hid that stuff. Like it was like a seal, I kept it like a secret, like stuff hidden under my bed. And because I didn't, I didn't want to, to be perceived as not loving of myself. Um, and so I ended up getting a scholarship to FAMU, right? My parents were like, you are going. <laughs> this is a full ride. And I think they were a little bit worried about me and my identity, you know, in the first place. And so um, I went and being in that kind of environment where I'm just around like black kids from all over the country and I'm just seeing the diversity among us. Yes. Was eye-opening, you know? There was a girl in my dorm down the hall who loved Tori Amos and my girl Rashida was into sort of like industrial music, you know what I mean? And it was a place where you could finally just, ugh, Yes. Yes. <sighs> Nobody's judging you. We all black. We go into a black school, you know? Um, and it was meeting all the people that I did and understanding that you might get teased a little bit. <laughs> like somebody might be like, oh, what, what is that you listening to? But it doesn't mean anything other than that. It's just like some slight teasing but nothing can strip you of being black and for me that was the moment my college experience was when my identity came together like I stopped compartmentalizing so much and I just let it all fuse together you know and my HBCU experience like gave me so much confidence that I hadn't had before to bring my full self and to not be ashamed of anything about myself. Mm. Um, it was pivotal. Like, I think that experience, like I learned more like sociologically than anything else. You know, it's a great university. Of course. It's good, like academically, but for me, it was learning about who I was and who I wanted to be going into the world mm. from that point on. When I, when I went to FAMU, um, it was uh, one of the first things that I noticed, or rather the first thing that I heard <laughs> was this, the classic call and response of students who were from Dade County and Duval County. Duval. <laughs> and that is it right there. <laughs> and I being from Orlando, I was a little bit jealous 
because we did not have a we did not have a call at the at that time. And so I remember our first like informational meeting. We were like, we need to we need to have a call, and it ended up becoming like I think we said like ozone or old town. I don't remember. It was one of those. Whatever it was, it just it never it never. Stopped. <laughs> um, so I was always jealous because I always saw it as like you all were a part of like this special sorority and fraternity based in the city that you that you came from. What was it like for you growing up in Jacksonville? I know you touched on it earlier about it being very country-like, but what specifically was it like for you to, to grow up in Jacksonville? Well, I will say Jacksonville has changed a lot since I was there. So don't nobody be coming to me on Twitter. It's not that country <laughs> anymore. I know. But so, um, you know, I was born in 76, went to college in 94. Those periods, um, Jacksonville is area-wise, it's huge. Mm-hmm. Like, uh, and it is very, it was at least very, very, very segregated. Like so segregated that they were still doing enforced busing. Um, my cousin lived on the north side, very black. And had to get up at a crazy hour, like to take the bus all the way across the bridge to the white neighborhood to go to school. Um, Jacksonville is an interesting place. So on the one hand, in terms of like, I'm just going to talk about musically. Mm -hmm. I was zoned my, my, if I didn't go to Stanton, my high school was Robert E. Lee High. (laughs) uh and robert e lee high was the high school of leonard skinnard which is a southern rock band probably the southern rock band that is most closely associated with the usage of the confederate flag Mm -hmm. right so you have that on one hand then you have on the other um when I was growing up, there was an all-ages club at Jacksonville Beach. It was called Einstein and Go-Go. And it was where kind of like all the uh, alternative kids went. So it was where like skaters met goths, met ravers. And then there was me, didn't not knowing how I fit in, you know. But it was sort of like this community of... I don't want to say like misfits, but it was sort of like in, in the book, like the cult of Opal and Nev's fans are called the Mercurials. And it was sort of like those kids mm-hmm. <laughs> was the kids that went to this club. And then of course, I grew up in a black family who was very like loved music. And my parents were in their twenties in the seventies. So I grew up on Marvin Gaye and Stevie Wonder, but then they also loved like jazz. My dad still has a huge jazz record collection. And so there's all these different influences going on um, that made it a really kind of interesting place to grow up. A little bit boring sometimes (laughs) and a little bit frustrating sometimes because until recently, like it was deeply read Jacksonville um but it it flipped 
It yes. did. It flipped. It did. We're I was so happy. <laughs> Changes are coming. Yeah. We're good. Yeah. I know we need to run a mile, but we'll we'll take we'll take like baby steps. <laughs> yes. So you, Disha, and Dantiel. Yes. Are, are basically running this like amazing book game. You guys are everywhere. So, you know, we just want to be privy of like how how you guys became like all friends and like did you all meet in Jacksonville? No. We are online friends only. Oh, wow. The virtual world. Because of the pandemic, you know, um, I am so proud of those women. Let me tell you, both those story collections are beautiful. And I'm so proud to be in this little Jacksonville, like, staying with them. But the thing that's so amazing about black women is that like, we are here for each other. So when I found out Disha was from Jacksonville, I was like, let me DM her (laughs) because her people, somebody in her people knows my people. So we were like, you know, DMing for a while. And, um, you know, I was like, you know, since my book is coming out, I would love to send it to her. And she was like, I would love to read it. Mailed it to her. I had actually, Dantiel and I, we applied to MFA programs the same year, 2016. So she and I sort of met through that virtually and had always sort of like kept in touch online. And so I looped her in because I knew she was from Jacksonville as well. And then that's like, we just like are here for each other and like supporting each other. And it's just been incredible. And Disha is so generous, you know, like she was like, girl, let's, you know, let's get on a Zoom, like let's talk, you know? And she has been so wonderful in terms of like sort of telling me about you know the publishing process and all the things that happen she's been like fantastic fantastic love both those women yeah we had mateo um Escarapor on our show a few weeks ago and we were talking about disha um for for us we had like previous guests but when we met disha i felt like the world opened up oh. to being able to meet you and so many other people because she was just so willing um, to just say, here are these people that I am excited about and that yep. I want you to be excited about them too. And her willingness to be able to speak to us is just, cause some people don't have time. They don't want to make time and mm-hmm. her making time and you making time. It just means the absolute world to to us for us to be um doing this having this conversation about what we love so much about your book and we are we are thankful beyond grateful for that so i am i have been so thankful for you and for the entire i mean the bookstagram community is keeps us uplifted you know and I mean, y'all are doing the work. 
in talking about these books, evangelizing for these books. And, um, you know, Disha has been, I love the way she has walked into this. I love that example that she has set. Her and Kiese Lehman as well um, is very much about being open and engaging and supporting the bookstagrammers who support us because we would not there would not be talk about our books if it weren't for y'all so thank you yeah she was the one that started the trend of like because before we used to ask like who are your top five favorite like books or like writers she was the one that changed it up and she was like well how about I tell you the five books that I'm excited about. She mentioned you and Dantiel and um, Brian. Mm -hmm. So, you know, and going through all of this, like she, she like, you know, she's like this wonderful human being that is willing and open to like share everything. And, yes. you know, and we, we have conversations like this because this book deserves to be talked about. Oh, you yeah. deserve to talk about Thank this you. book. Um, people need to hear about it. People need to to read it. Mm -hmm, so, mm -hmm. and we 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 talk to people that we are genuinely excited about, that we genuinely like think deserves to be talked about. And you're one of those. So, thank you so yes. much for being here. Thank you. It is my absolute pleasure. I have loved this. <laughs> so, before we let you go, we're gonna yeah. go to our our rapid fire questions. So I'm gonna let Diddy. <laughs> <she's> gonna... All right. <laughs> let me get ready. I'm sweating already. Let's see. <laughs> So, um, so we're gonna we're gonna hit it. Um, so, which name the best underrated rock album? Ooh, ooh, Nona Hendrix's self-titled album from I think nineteen seventy-one. Y'all, <laughs> I love it. What is your most favorite album of all time? Oh no! <laughs> I hate it when people ask me this. <laughs> Of all time, yeah. Uh, like if your if your house is gonna go on fire and you can only save one album, oh, or maybe ten or five. <laughs> okay, let me let me say um, Stevie Wonder talking book. Ooh, mm. yes, she loves Stevie Wonder. I love, love Stevie Wonder. I love Stevie Wonder. Um, yeah. A concert that you would kill to see today. Any artist oh. or dead? Um, I would love to see Prince again. Ooh. I got to see him in 2014. He headlined Essence Festival. It was incredible. <laughs> oh. I would love to see him. But instead of in a big arena, in a little club. Ooh. Oh yeah, very yeah, intimate. very intimate. Yeah, she got it all the way down to the setting. I know that's how she <laughs> does it, though. Yes, um, <laughs> you, your most favorite photographer because we know you. You you'd also do oh, mm. oh my gosh, hmm. Uh, I don't know. It's really hard. Um, so I worked for uh, 
I look, I've, I've seen a lot of archival photography because I worked at life.com, which was the rebirth of the photography magazine. And, um, I loved a lot of those photographers. Oh, I'm going to say Carrie Mae Weems. Yes. It's more like a fine art photographer. Yes. 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 Her work is amazing. <laughs> yes, it is yes. amazing. Oh, amazing. I heard on a podcast talking about her relationship and her deciding that she wanted to get married. And it was like, at first she never wanted to get married. She is amazing. Yes. And so talented. Like the work just has levels, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Best celebrity you've interviewed. Hmm. I got to, uh, Oh, (laughs) (laughs) Again, at Life, I had the honor of interviewing Sophia Loren. Oh, wow. Was this yeah. like, that was, what was the, what was the piece about? Why were you covering? Yeah. So we often would go into archives and find unpublished images. Mm-hmm. Um, and we found these, like, we put together because life covered her so many different times at the height of her career. And from those shoots, like, there's all these, like, there's what makes the magazine, but there's all these other frames that that don't. And so we put together some images and we got to send them to her and have her talk about them and got to talk to her about the love of her life, who was her husband, you know, those times. And, um, being young and very famous. She was lovely, so elegant. Mm. Yeah. Awesome conversation. This I don't mm-hmm. this I don't have the rights to ask. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we're gonna make you choose. Oh goodness. Afro Punk Festival or Essence Festival? Oh no, don't <laughs> do that to me. I have no right to ask you that question. Hence <laughs> <laughs> oh no you love them okay the same here's what i'm gonna say here's what i'm gonna say okay i'm gonna say as an overall experience ss festival is lit like ss festival is a really really good soul filling time afropunk is also great however like I loved like the earlier days of Afropunk. Like I remember the first one was in the parking lot of Brooklyn Academy of Music. Mm -hmm. And it was just a stage with a few bands and people bringing their kids, you know? So you saw these little black skaters on the little ramps that they had set up. And there was something like special about that that was really intimate and I felt really seen in a way that like, I'm getting older now. So like Afropunk, like a lot of it's like a fashion show in a way that like, I can't keep up with that. Like I'm really kind of boring, you know? I'm like a writer, I'm kind of nerdy, you know? But both of them are a really good time. Yeah, I, my, my dream is to go to both of them. I wanted to go before, I guess it was probably like pre-Solange days. I, as you yeah. in the earlier days, um, I definitely would have died to go to Afropunk. And I 
I always want to go to Essence Festival. I really wish I had taken my my chance when I had it. I really hope we can be able to get back to that place once the-, the Me too, me too. You'll get to go, sis. I know you will. I hope so. Yeah, yeah. Um, I guess so. We're gonna we're gonna close out with our classic question, as we discussed earlier. Um, you can either give us your top five uh, favorite books or your top five books that you are excited about. Any writers that you that you're excited about? Uh, I will give you some that I'm excited about. Uh, Monica West has a book coming out in May called Revival Season. Uh, I went to Iowa with Monica, so I'm familiar with her writing and I got an advanced copy of her novel and it's beautiful. Um, it deals a lot with, um, it's about a black family. It's about religion. Well, it's more about faith mm. and religion. Um, and it's just a beautiful book told from the perspective of uh, a 15 year old girl. So it's very tender and very beautiful. I'm reading a book now called The Other Black Girl, which you probably have heard about. Yeah, I want that book so bad. <laughs> and listen, like, I'm pretty busy these days and it's frustrating because I just want to tear through that thing. Because every time I read it, I'm just like, oh, I'm just like turning the pages, turning the pages. Um, but Zakia Dalila Harris, um, who I've also become friendly with online, um, is a really great writer and I love sort of the, the, the dark humor and the satire I think that's happening in that book. So I'm really excited for that to come out. Mm -hmm. There is uh, a book called The Atmospherians by Alex McElroy that's coming out. Um, and that is also a satire that is very much based in sort of like um, our social media era and our sort of understanding of um, gender, gender roles. And I am, I haven't read any of it yet, but I'm hearing great, great things, seeing great reviews. So I'm very excited to read that one. And then I'm, I'm still, I'm also reading at the same time I'm reading The Other Black Girl. I'm reading, it's been out for a little while now, The Prophets by Robert Jones Jr., Yes. yes. <laughs> we just got our cop our autograph copy from Green Light. So that's sitting on my on wonderful. My <laughs> yeah, yeah. And Robert, another very generous writer. And it's the kind of book that I'm really taking my time with it because it's a book that you want to sit with uh and really savor. So and then uh, there is a nonfiction book coming out. Um, gosh, what is it called? I'm going to get the title wrong. The Devil in Little America or uh, I'm going to get the title wrong. I'm going to look it up really quickly. <laughs> but it's about um, it's about the history of black performance. It's a it's an essay collection. Um, so I'm excited. Those are the five that I'm excited about. And I'm sorry, I'm looking up this, this book title. We will take those deeps. Yeah. A Little Devil in America by Han Hanif Abdurraqib, mm -hmm. who is, um, is a beautiful writer. 
um, I've read a lot of his work in like um, New York Magazine and things like that, but I'm hearing fabulous things about this book. And it has a life photograph on the cover, a Jean Millie photo of uh, Lindy Hoppers. Yes. Was, yeah. it, was that particular fo photo, was that something that you saw with your own eyes when working at Life? Oh, sure. Yeah. Yeah. All the classic life photos. Um, I mean, they were all over the place. I mean, they've been produced countless times. Mm -hmm. um, so I can't say that I saw like I had the negative in my hand, but all kinds of different iterations of them and different books that have been published over the years or just at, at work on posters on the wall. Um, so yeah, it was so cool to be around all that photography. So before we close this out, um, what, what is the biggest takeaway you want people to have when reading, when reading your novel, The Final Revival of Opal and Nev? I'm glad you asked that question because I really, um, I appreciate, I do appreciate what people have said about the book being a lot about race and systemic issues um, as seen playing out in like culture and the music industry. But for me, what I never want to get lost, the things that I really loved writing about was the community that exists between the Black characters, mm. even when they're at odds. Mm. Um, the relationship, say, between Opal and her best friend, Virgil, yes. was one that was very dear to me, um, sort of following them over decades and understanding what they've meant to each other and how he can sort of check her when she needs to be checked. And that's who they are for each other. Between Opal and her sister, Pearl, you know, who really like, they argue, they go through it, but in moments when Opal is feeling confused on the road about what she's doing, she calls Pearl, yep. you know? Mm -hmm. And also the, the connection even that Opal and Jimmy have finding each other as being the rare black people in their field. Um, and that's sort of why they're drawn to each other. And then finally, the relationship between Opal and Sunny, um, which is also a complicated one, but also sort of built on mutual respect and admiration. Mm -hmm. um, and I think I would hope that people feel the love between those characters and the joy that they do find together in moments. You know, I think there's a lot, I hope that people would take away the warmth between them and how important that they are to each other. Well, on that note, I just want to say from the bottom of our hearts, yes, thank you so much for uh, being on our show. Um, it means, like we said, it means the world to us. We yes. really hope that your your book is on the tip of everyone's tongue for the rest of the years to come. Yeah, I'm definitely. I I can't wait because I'm I'm sending it to my my niece who is into all kinds of music. She plays the bass. And, the guitar and this is like going to I think really hit a core in her heart oh, and I that just makes me so happy 
just thank you for writing it for girls like her and girls like us. Mm -hmm. And it just, it just, it means so much. And um, before I let you go, I just <laughs> want the world to know that when the dark clouds oh, say it. On the horizon, <laughs> you must always remember that the Rattlers will strike, 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 and strike again. again. Yes. yes. <laughs> Donnie, for this wonderful time, thank you for creating this novel. Thank you for involving us in this world. The music that came with, with all of this, we're excited to listen to. And, you know, hopefully everybody gets to read your novel. And thank you. You deserve all the attention, the praise for this. Yes. Thank you, Denny and Veronica. This has been fantastic. The highlight of my day. Thank you. Thank you so much. You, you. you take care. Be safe. You too. Okay. Bye. Bye. Good night. We hope you enjoyed our show. Follow us on Instagram at Vulgar Geniuses Book Club. Our theme song was produced by Sean Kantrowitz. Follow him on Instagram and Twitter at Sean Dammit. That's spelled S-E-A-N-D-A-M-M-I-T. Make sure to like, comment, and subscribe to our podcast on Anchor, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify. See you next time. Deuces.